Welcome to the Layman's Guide to the Lectionary with your host, Pastor Steve Andrews. This weekend, our churches will celebrate together the baptism of our Lord Sunday in year C. Our Old Testament text is Isaiah chapter 43, verses 1 through 7. The epistle, Romans chapter 6, verses 1 through 11, which is a repeated text every single uh, baptism of our Lord Sunday, year A, B, and C. And then the gospel reading will be from Luke chapter 3, verses 15 to 22. So the Old Testament and the gospel actually differ in years A, B, and C, but the epistle text is carried throughout them all. So let's begin with our Isaiah reading, Isaiah 43, verses 1 through 7. This is just one paragraph in the text, and in order to to get a good running start at it, um, the... The text right before it, immediately preceding, verses 22 to 25, the end of chapter 42, is about how Israel has been rightly judged by God. That what is happening to them, in essence, is deserved on account of their sin. And this is something that as the church today, we, we understand and we agree with. I, I recognize that on my own, left on my own, I am a sinner and I deserve God's judgment. I deserve to be damned for my rebellion against him. That is the context that is helpful as we start then into chapter 43, which is just one paragraph, so I'll read the whole thing now. But now, thus says Yahweh, he who created you, O Jacob, he who formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name, you are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through fire you shall not be burned, and the flame shall not consume you. For I am Yahweh your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. I give Egypt as your ransom, Cush and Seba in exchange for you, because you are precious in my eyes and honored, and I love you. I give men in return for you, peoples in exchange for your life. Fear not, for I am with you, I will bring your offspring from the east, and from the west I will gather you. I will say to the north, Give up, and to the south, Do not withhold. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the end of the earth, everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. As I said, the running start helpful here because it's but now, thus says Yahweh. So God is speaking to the people who are enduring his judgment. They are cast into exile because of their sin and their lack of faith, their lack of repentance. But in that exile, God does not abandon them. He calls them back. He chooses to redeem them. Thus says Yahweh now. So it's it's a new thing. And it's a definite thing. This is God speaking. And what God speaks happens. This is the beauty all the way back to the beginning of creation. God said, let there be light. And there was light. This is here. When the Lord declares something, it is reality. And so the Lord has declared for his people redemption. So who is this Lord? Who is this Yahweh? Verse 40, well, verse 1 of chapter 43 gives us a little more of that. Here is what this Yahweh has already done for you. He who created you, O Jacob. So we can go all the way back again, Genesis 1, to the creation account. We could go back to the womb, right? We could talk about God's creation there, although that's more the next line, who, he who formed you. This gives us the picture, though, of all of Israel's history. As those names, Jacob and Israel, are employed, Jacob being the grandson of Abraham, so God chose Abraham to be his holy people and his descendants after him. And then Abraham has Isaac. Isaac has Jacob. Jacob is later renamed Israel, and his children, the twelve sons, become the twelve tribes of the nation. As that nation becomes, well, just that, a nation, that promised nation that would be grown out of Abraham's children. God created all of us, but he created that nation 
God formed all of us, but he specifically formed that nation for himself. We don't have to just look at this in the Old Testament context either, though. We can, as the church today, see this in light of Christ, and that is all the more profound and all the more helpful. We are Israel. You, me, everyone who trusts in Jesus Christ is the new Israel. We are the church. Church, Israel, same thing. That's it today. It's no longer a geographic location, although history will still talk about it that way, as will politics. We don't have to. We'll see how this text applies then to the nation of Israel, the holy chosen people of God in the Old Testament, but we can also see how it applies to us as the church. Fear not, for I have redeemed you. Fear not is common language in scripture, right? Also said by Jesus several times by the angels, typically when they first visit with someone. Here, the reason that they have nothing to fear is because God is delivering them. So the fear would be of enemies, right? Uh, The fear of Assyria, the fear of Babylon. And yet God will deliver, God will restore. This is actually a common text in shut-in visits for pastors. We have what's called the pastoral care companion. It looks like our hymnal except for smaller. Um, And in the front of that, there is a service for bringing communion, the Lord's Supper, to those who are homebound. And it has three different scripture passages in it that you can read to uh, the person that you are, are bringing the Lord's Supper to. And this is one of them. This text here. The hope that we have, and as we'll see, also the connection to judgment that is going to come up with this as well. I have redeemed you. That is language that we don't use in English very often in our era today. Redeeming qualities might be one example of it. You know, somebody's a bad person. Do they have any redeeming qualities, anything that would make them good? Not as helpful in this. Although I guess we could talk about it from that way, that God took these bad people and he brought them back anyway. Uh, He changed their status, their position in the world. Honestly, couponing might be the best one that I'm coming up with as the idea of the couponing world is that you redeem a coupon. So you take your coupon, you pay for your items, but you give the coupon to the cashier and you get some of your money back, right? You give something to get something. That's the picture here, that God is going to redeem his holy people. He's going to buy them back for himself And he's going to do so as we know it by his own most precious blood. It is the blood of Christ that redeems us and buys us back. So fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. The I have called you by name line in the Old Testament sense would be that God has indeed made them, right? Connecting to the rest of the verse, I created you, I formed you. He gave them their name. In the same way, though, it also connects to you and to me. Not the direct naming, although, I mean, God could take credit for that too, that my name is Steve and your name is whatever your name is. I don't know who's listening. But more directly to the name that we bear together. We are Christian. We are little Christ's. That is the name that we bear. We bear the name of God through our baptisms. I baptize you in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. So our name is God's name written upon us. He has called us by name. He has redeemed us. We are his. Five times in the Old Testament you'll find the phrase, treasured possession. You don't see it in the New Testament, but what you do get in the New Testament, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9, we are called a people for his own possession. 
And that's what we are. You are his. Ever since that water of baptism was splashed upon your head, or if you were dunked into it, submerged, ever since that moment you have been his. His child, called by name, you are his. And this would be a potential connection to the gospel text uh, that we are baptized as children of God. And that baptism is going to continue as we come to verse 2. Now, again, there's Old and New Testament stuff going on in verse 2 here. The, the Old Testament idea of verse 2 at the start, when you pass through the waters, through the rivers, is God connecting them back to the Red Sea crossing. And then they crossed also the Jordan River, too. So they crossed the Red Sea to leave Egypt, God's salvation. They crossed the Jordan River from east to west to enter the promised land, God providing. So when you pass through the waters, I will be with you. God is with his people. He's reminding them of the things that he has done for them. But we would also connect this forward to the church today. We would connect it to baptism. That you and I have been saved through passing through the water. We, we are not overwhelmed. At least not by water. We're overwhelmed, I guess you could say if you wanted to, by the Lord's grace. As he pours out his grace upon us and our cup overflows. He is with us. The other phrase here in verse 2, When you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned. The flame shall not consume you. And again, this one takes you back. It's meant to get God's people to think of several things, right? Primarily, if you're thinking backwards here, you'd be thinking the fiery furnace in Daniel chapter 3, perhaps, that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego would not bow down to the idols of the Babylonian king, and so he gets angry and throws them in the furnace, ordered it to be heated up extra hot. The flames engulfed and killed the men who brought them to the furnace, right? So you you instruct your soldiers, carry those three men, toss them into the furnace. The guys that had to do that died. But Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego unharmed. I guess I shouldn't say this calls the mind back to because that is yet a future event from this perspective. Unlike the crossing of the Red Sea and the crossing of the Jordan River, which were in the past, fiery furnace would be, I don't know, at least 100 years into the future, 150 years or so. We would also connect this, though, ourselves to New Testament things that we are familiar with. So 2 Peter 3 and the discussion of judgment, that heaven and earth are stored up for the fire. So the, the judgment will come upon creation But as the faithful, as those redeemed by the blood of Christ, you will not be burned up along with everything else. 1 Corinthians 3 is similar, although not the same, as it gets at the idea of our works being refined, tested as by fire. So when when you take metal and you put it into the fire, the hope is that you get a better, purer metal at the end in the refining process. Here the picture, though, is that our works will be tested by God. And really, in that text, too, it's the one who clings to Christ. That's the one whose works will pass through the fire, who will endure that trial. Otherwise, um, so we are the ones the flame will not consume. But if you are not one of those redeemed by the blood of Christ, because you have rejected that forgiveness, because you trusted not in God, but in yourself, those, as Jesus has said, will be cast into the place of weeping and gnashing of teeth. I think that's described once in the New Testament as being fiery, a fiery place. Matthew 13, perhaps? Maybe I should look that one up real quick. Yeah, uh, Matthew 13, throw them into the fiery furnace, and that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then as we move into verse 3, I am Yahweh your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. I want you to see the old name of God and the new name of God in that verse. Right? Lord in all capital letters in the Hebrew text, being the divine name Yahweh, first given to Moses at the burning bush in Exodus chapter 3. This is the name by which I shall be remembered 
from generation to generation and forever. And then Savior. Matthew chapter 1, verse 21, I think it is, um, that you will name him Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. The name Jesus uh, is the Old Testament name, Yeshua, which is where we get Joshua from in English. That name means he saves. In Greek, it's Jesus. Uh, And so he saves. That's the new name that God gives. Notice that God's name is about who he is and it's about what he does. So the Old Testament name, he is, that's the, the meaning of Yahweh, he is, simply states a confession of faith. It's who he is. And you could then connect it to all that he has done for us through that, right? Because he is our God, he has done what? Well, the things we just talked about. He's guided them through the water. He's guided them through fire. He has protected them. He's created them. He's formed them. He has, well, he's working in the process. He's done it already before many times, but he's working again to redeem them. And then we would talk about him as our savior. That Jesus has come, that Jesus delivers us from sin, from death and the devil. I would give Egypt as your ransom. It's almost, it's phrased like a trade. Like the Lord, the Lord calls upon Persia to come and to destroy Babylon, right? The Lord is, the Lord is at hand. He is in control. He is behind even the events that happen even today in this world. So when one government crushes another, it is God's judgment. And God used Persia to bring that divine judgment upon Babylon. And Cyrus, the great, the king of Persia at the start of that, 538 BC, 539 when he defeated them, he admits it, right? We have it recorded in scripture. You can read the book of Ezra, the first chapter, and you can see King Cyrus confessing that Yahweh, the God of heaven and earth, gave him all that he has. It's quite a confession. And so Cyrus is the redemption that is Old Testamently in mind here. I don't know if that's an actual phrase, Old Testamently, but that's the picture. That's this redemption that is being discussed. That is when God will bring them back from east and west and north and south. He will bring them home. But we know that that redemption is greater in Jesus. So let's hold that. We'll come back to that. Uh, But here we have it. I give Egypt as your ransom. So it's like a trade as God is... God is using Persia to free his people of Judah, and in exchange, he's giving Persia other land. And again, Cyrus acknowledging that all that he has comes from Yahweh. Cush and Seba in exchange for you. Cush well, Cush and Seba both are lands that are near Egypt, but to the southeast of it. So if you looked at a map where Egypt is and then just kind of move southeast down past the Red Sea there, that would be where these two places are. Because you are precious in my eyes. And we have not earned that, right? God's Old Testament people did not earn that preciousness in God's eyes. They are precious because he made them. He who created you, O Jacob, he who formed you, O Israel, I have called you by name. You are mine. Because of that, they are precious in his eyes. And he is willing to give men in return for them. We would talk about the Exodus account. Um, how the Lord pummeled Egypt with the plagues, and many died in exchange for the Israelites being set free. We could talk again, as we just did with verse 3, the the ransom, the exchange, the trade with Persia, because they are precious in his eyes, because he loves them. He gives men in return for them. We would talk about this now in the New Testament era as not men, but one man, because you are precious in God's eyes. Because he loves you, he sent his son, Jesus Christ, to, well, redeem you, to buy you back, to bring you back to himself, to be the ransom, the exchange, to deliver you from your sin. One man, Jesus Christ. Fear not, so second time in the text, for I am with you. 
This is the argument Moses actually makes at the Red Sea. All right, right at the, is it the end of Exodus 14 or maybe it's the middle of the chapter, but he tells them that they don't need to fear the Egyptians that they see standing before them that day. They'll never see them again. That God will fight for them and that they need only to be still. Exodus 14, it's verses 13 and 14. Um, Really profound faith that Moses is displaying in those verses. When God is with his people, this is a good thing. You have the tabernacle, you have the temple of the Old Testament era of God's people where he promised he would dwell in their midst, that he would be with them, he would speak to them, he would give them his word. And then we learn from primarily John's gospel how this is Jesus for us now. I mean, John chapter 1, that the word became flesh and dwelt among us, literally tabernacled among us from the Greek. And that also then we learn later in the book that John, that Jesus is the temple, right? Tear down this temple and I will re- rebuild it in three days, that kind of language. God is with us and because he is with us, we need not fear. And this is a truth even today for us in the church. We need not fear anything. In fact, we're told not to, commanded not to by Christ himself several times. The only thing Christ tells us we are to fear is himself, is to fear God, which is how we begin our small catechism explanation answers to each of those Ten Commandments. You should fear, love, and trust in God above all things. Should fear lo- we should fear and trust God so that if we fear God, we need fear nothing else because we have been redeemed. He is going to bring us from east, west, north, and south unto his paradise, to his holy temple. Where the book of Revelation, I think it's chapter 3, declares that you will be a pillar in the house of God forever. God is going to redeem his people, all of his people. Again, see verse 1, he created them, right? He formed them, they are his. He's going to redeem them, he's going to bring them back to himself. Those who are called by his name, which we saw also in verse 1, you, O Christian, are saved by the blood of Christ. Everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. It's interesting that phrase, whom I created for my glory. This is off the top of my head, but I'm curious if this is the only indication in Scripture of a reason for creation. If you ask a a typical Christian, why did God create us? Why did God create anything? You you normally will hear the the idea that he created out of love. And I don't want to deny that. It's not that God doesn't love us. He certainly does. We've seen that in the text. I'm just wondering if this might be the only time that we actually have God himself speak a reason behind the act of creating. If you see others in scripture, let me know. Um, Shoot me a message. Uh, I'm, I'm curious about that topic, as that is a question that comes up quite frequently. Um, So here, God says that he created for his glory so that we would look to him. He created us, and we glorify him. We point others to him. Fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. You can see why this is in the the shut-in, the the homebound care, the communion service to our elderly, that they are his, that he has redeemed them. This is a text that talks of salvation from the Old Testament that the Lord will save. This is good news. Just as our Old Testament reading was a fairly well-known part of Scripture, really so is our epistle text from Romans chapter 6, verses 1 through 11. Maybe not all of it, 
but it is a it's another one of those deeply profound scriptures that is important for us as Christians to know and to engage and to wrestle with. Uh, this is this is good stuff. And there are a couple of verses in here that when you hear them, you'll think, yeah, I've heard that one a lot. Um, if you've been in church any number of times, I mean, this is stuff that comes up again and again. These are kind of verses that your preacher will cite in sermons throughout the year, not just when this text shows up. So these are familiar to us. We've studied them in our catechism, but we get to put it into its context and see some of the bigger picture here today. So again, this is this Romans letter is Paul writing to the Christian church that was established in the city of Rome. Um, I couldn't tell you really how large that congregation would have been. Um, churches tended to have been small. And so this is a group of brothers and sisters in Christ who they, they've put their trust in Jesus as their Savior. Um, they, they believe in him and what he has done for them by his death and by his resurrection. That he is the way to life and to salvation. And Paul is addressing them in this letter. And the, the, okay, I'll read it first. We're going to read it in two chunks. So we're going to read verses one through four first. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in the newness of life. Paul pulls this kind of rhetorical question device off throughout the letter. And if I recall correctly, those first words in verse 2, by no means, uh, are words in Greek, it's meganoita that he uses 10 times in the letter. So he's asked a question, and he refutes the question that he just asked. Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? So, I mean, the what shall we say then question leads you to start thinking, okay, this is common conversation. Paul is addressing something that has come up among them. So what is that thing? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? In a, another way to kind of put that, we love to sin, God loves to forgive, that's great. This is going to work out well. We can go on sinning, he'll go on forgiving, everybody's happy. Is that how it works? By no means. Or literally the meganoita, may it never be, may it never be happen. And then he goes on to explain it. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Wait a second, Paul, you mean we're dead to sin? When did that happen? How did I miss that? Well, Paul goes on to answer that question for them immediately next. You are dead to sin, Christian. When did it happen? In your baptism. Verse 3. And this is probably the best known of the verses in this whole reading today. From Romans 6 at least. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Do you not know? You should know this. Do you? Why were you baptized? What did it mean? What was it for? I guess perhaps there is our connection to the gospel text that Jesus is baptized here. We are baptized, but that's not the same thing. You have been baptized into Jesus. And when you were baptized into Jesus, you were baptized not just into Jesus, you were baptized into his death. That is, in that moment, when water was poured upon you, you were crucified with him. And Paul's going to use that very language coming up in verse 6. 
when you were baptized, you died. This connects to John chapter 3. Everybody knows John 3.16, but the conversation around it is Jesus talking to Nicodemus and telling him that he must be born again. And Nicodemus doesn't understand and says, how can I crawl back into my mother's womb to be born again? Jesus tells him that you must be born again of water and the spirit. And that is baptism. That is the reference point there. You must be born again. So in baptism, your old self is put to death in order that the new self may live. The old Adam dies and the new Adam lives. You are no longer a slave to sin. That's also coming up in the next paragraph. You were baptized into death. You were baptized into his death. You were baptized into his blood, into his forgiveness. And not only were you baptized with him, buried with him, you were buried with him into death in order that, so that, just as Christ was raised from the dead, so you too would walk in the newness of life. So the progression of the text, you are baptized into his death, that is, you are baptized into forgiveness, so that you can have life. You die so that you can live. You are baptized so that you can be raised. You are forgiven so that you can live with Christ forever. Second part of the text, verses 5 through 11. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourself dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. That's where he's aiming. Verse 11. The, the, the thrust, the goal of the text for the hearer. To come to that point. To come to that understanding. But we'll come back to that. Verse 5 is an if-then statement. If you have been united with him in death, you will also be united with him in resurrection. It is not either or. You weren't just martyred. You weren't just killed and then left dead. But nor will you just be raised. The two are a pair. You don't get one without the other. You must die to sin and be raised to new life. Just as surely as you were united to him in his death, just as surely as that faith was created in you and that old Adam was drowned in that water, so now you will surely be united with him in his resurrection. That as he lives, you will live. Christ lives forevermore. There is no end to Christ's life. Death no longer has dominion over him. I'm jumping ahead. We'll come back to that. So much to this text. Verse 6. Our old self was crucified with him. And notice it's not the first time that Paul says, we know. Right? I mean, back up in verse 3, that was the accusation there. Do you not know? Yes, they, they were supposed to know this. This is is for them to know. Verse 6, we know that. Verse 9, we know that. Paul is not introducing new material. He's building upon the faith the Christian already has. Our old self was crucified with him. Our, 
our sinful nature, which desires to live this life only for me, myself, and I, was killed. Well, that doesn't mean it doesn't still rear its ugly head. That does not mean that our sinful nature doesn't still wish to drag us down into death with it. But that old master of us has been destroyed. It has been defeated. It is no longer our master. Your sin no longer has hold over you. You are no longer a slave of sin. We don't quite get there in this text, but we are now slaves of God. That's Paul's own language. He speaks that way elsewhere in this very letter. You are freed from slavery to sin, and now you are slaves of Christ. You had one master, and a new master conquered it. You had the master of sin that ruled over your body, leading you to death, and a new master rode into Jerusalem on a donkey to be that conqueror, but not to conquer Rome, but to conquer your master to conquer sin, to destroy the one who held the chains over you. And just as when a man conquers a nation, he does not just let the nation go to waste, it is now his nation, so it is for Christ. When he conquered sin, he made you his. You are his, you are his child, you are his now, if we speak of Jesus, typically we speak of being his bride. The church is his bride. You are his. We are now slaves of God. We are slaves to do his will, not our will. Verse 7 is profoundly true. The one who has died has been set free from sin. We think of this in the big picture, we think of this in the end, right? That in paradise, there will be no more sin. There will be no suffering. There will be no death. There will be no tears. God will wipe it all away. And so the one who has died no longer sins. The one who has died no longer suffers the consequences of sin, either their own sin, which bring about our death, or the sins of others that would harm them. They no longer have that. They have been set free. Yes, that is profoundly true of the last day when Christ returns and the dead are raised. But, but it has implications for you even now. Right? I mean, look at the context. Does, we know verse 7 is true of, of literal death. When we kill over dead, then there's no more sin for that person. But does the context tell you that's what Paul's talking about? You died when you were baptized. Verse 11, consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to Christ Jesus. The life he lives, he lives to God. He will never die again. All these statements in the context around verse 7 tell us that we shouldn't look at verse 7 about the future. We should look at verse 7 as being even about now, as having an implication for you even now. You, in your baptism, have died with Christ. You are set free from sin. Sin is no longer your master. Really, it's just an extension of verse 6. It is an extension of that phrase that you are no longer enslaved to sin. You no longer have to do the bidding of your sinful nature that tells you to only focus on yourself. You are free to love. You are free to care for God's creation. You are free to think of your neighbor before you think of yourself. You are free to think of your neighbors before you think of yourself. Verse 8, if we have died with Christ, we believe we will also live with him. Again, it's not one or the other, it's both. You cannot live with Christ if you do not die with Christ. But if you've died with Christ, you will also live with him. These two things are bound together. 
just as a man and woman are bound together in marriage. And as God says himself, that no man put asunder, no man can separate. So it is with these things. No man can separate these things. They are, they are one because God has made them one. Verse 9, Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. What an important concept. What an important reality that is for the church. Christ died. The one who came into this world to be the Savior, to, to be the Messiah, that the world looked at and thought, this is the one who will save us from our oppression, who will save us from all the evil things that are happening to us by these evil and wretched leaders that are over us. He will establish this great new kingdom for us. Well, they were wrong. They were wrong about the enemy that he had come to defeat. The Roman leaders... We're not the enemy. The, the corrupted Jewish leaders that we call the Pharisees in the New Testament, they were not the enemy. They were bound to the enemy. They were enslaved by the enemy. They were misled by the enemy, but they were not the enemy. The enemy was death. The enemy was sin. Sin had worn them down. Sin had enslaved them just as it had enslaved us. And Christ came to break that bondage. And he did by going to the cross, God himself in the flesh, going to the cross and offering up his life. No greater love has man than this, that he lay down his life for his friends. Jesus laid down his life for us. He gave himself that we might live and because he gave himself, because he died on that cross, but then he rose again from the dead, God raised him from the dead, he can never die again. He is now immortal. Being God, he was immortal. But when he took on flesh, he also took on mortality. He took on the ability to die, and he died. But now his resurrected body is immortal. Just as Paul will go on to say in the letter he writes to the Corinthian church, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, the resurrection chapter, Paul unpacks this one, that you will be raised immortal, imperishable. God has raised his son Jesus from the dead, and because he has raised Jesus from the dead, death has no, death has no power over him. Jesus just stepped out of a tomb like it was no big deal, except for it was. It was the big deal. It was the biggest deal of all. That is, Jesus stepped forth from that tomb. He rendered death incompetent forever. Death no longer has any power. It doesn't have any power over him. It doesn't have any power over you. Such a profound truth, again, in the text here. Verse 10, the death he died, he died to sin once for all. Jesus' death was not for some. Jesus' death was not, um, well, it wasn't like the Old Testament sacrificial system, which was... You know, you'd sacrifice an animal and get a little forgiveness. Jesus' death was for all people, all time, all sins, everywhere. The whole world has been covered over by Christ. So God looked down on his creation back in Genesis 6 and saw that the hearts of men are nothing but evil all the time, and he wiped out his creation now God looks down over his creation and he sees not the evil of our hearts, which is still there, and we still must daily repent of that. It is still there in many of our neighbors and they don't repent of it. They don't want to repent of it. But God looks down and he sees not that evil. He sees the forgiveness of his son. 
He sees the righteousness of his son. His creation has been reconciled. His creation is no longer an enemy that fights against him. Jesus rose from the dead not to live for his purpose, not to live for his will, but to live for the Father's will, to do what the Father has intended for him to do. And that then connects us to verse 11, which is again the thrust that Paul wanted the hearers to hear and to understand. You also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Consider yourselves. Hearers today on your podcasting app, wherever you are, consider yourselves dead to sin. and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Sin is no longer your master. You no longer have to give in to whatever temptations that you face and that you fight. They don't have the power over you anymore. This is not to say that we won't still sin, but it is simply to say, it's not simply to say, this is profoundly to say, but on a, a, a simple and personal note, it's to shift our mindset away from I will sin to God forgives me if I sin, when I sin. We don't come to confess our sins to Jesus saying, you know, I did this thing today, Jesus, I lied. But I'm a sinner and I'm going to lie again and I know I'm going to lie again. So thank you for today. That's not how we confess. We confess, we repent, we turn away from our sin. We confess to the Lord that we have lied and we thank him for our forgiveness. There is not, we don't hold on to the thought in the back of our minds that we're going to go do that sin again. It is not repentance if you've somehow harbored that sin somewhere so that you can return to it. That is not repenting. It may well be that you do return to it after you've repented. But we don't live for it. We live for God. And if when we sin again, we confess and the Lord forgives, and we go out and we continue to live for God. We are not here to live for ourselves. We are here to live to serve the Lord and to love our neighbor. That's the purpose Christ gives to us in the Gospels. Again and again, we see it all the time in the New Testament. If you're looking for it, you see it. That life has two purposes for you. Love God, love your neighbor. That's what we've been given to do, not to live for our own purpose, but to live for his purpose. You are dead to sin, and you are alive in Christ Jesus. That is the answer to verse 1's question, are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? In all honesty, grace, grace doesn't somehow abound. Grace has been once and for all poured out, and you have, been, you have been overwhelmingly covered in grace until your cup overfloweth. You are his forevermore. This brings us at last to our gospel reading from Luke chapter 3, verses 15 through 22. As the people were in expectation... And all were questioning in their hearts concerning John whether he might be the Christ. John answered them all, saying, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire probably should have introduced the text to you. So last week, we had the end of Luke chapter 2. The opening 14 verses of chapter 3 was the reading for us in the second Sunday in Advent. So that was one, two, three, four weeks ago, I believe. And there we saw the beginning of John's ministry that he had come out of the wilderness, was preparing the way for people to see the Messiah, to see the Christ. 
And that's where we pick up here. As the people were in expectation, the Jews were trusting in the promise that God had made, that he was going to deliver them, that he was going to send a ruler that would be born in Bethlehem, that would rule over the throne in Jerusalem, whose kingdom would have no end as he promised to King David back in 2 Samuel chapter 7. This Messiah, they're expecting him. They're looking forward to his coming. And so they are questioning in their hearts. They're wondering because of all that they have heard from John, the teaching, the preaching that he is doing, if he might be the Messiah, if he might be the Christ. Now, Messiah and Christ are actually synonyms to each other um, in, in the sense that we would use that word. Uh, Messiah is Hebrew for anointed one. Christ is Greek for anointed one. Mashiach, Christos. Um, and so the anointed one, uh, they anointed prophets, priests, and kings. Is this the one who will be anointed king over Israel? Now, Jesus, the, the real true Messiah and Christ, Jesus is all of those things for us. He is our prophet. He speaks God's word to us. He is our priest who offers sacrifice for the forgiveness of our sins. And he is also our king who rules over us and cares for us every day from this point forward. So they wonder if John is him. Now, remember that the last book of the Old Testament is Malachi, written roughly 430 B.C. It's been over 400 years since the people of God have had a prophet. They have lived, in a sense, in darkness, without a revelation from the Lord. They have not heard from him in all that time. And so now John comes, and he's very specifically a prophet. In fact, he'll be called by Jesus himself. He'll be called the greatest among men who has ever been born of a, from the womb of a woman. It's fair for them to consider this when you ponder it that way. But John's answer to them is a very complicated no. He didn't just say, no, not me. He actually wanted to point them in the direction of the one who is to come. So here's his answer. I baptize you with water. So John baptizing in the Jordan River. Uh, actually, the, perhaps the first baptism in all of Scripture happened in the Jordan River with Naaman, the foreign military commander who came to be healed of his leprosy and was instructed to go dip in the Jordan River seven times and he would be healed. So John baptizes with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. That is a position of great humility. I mean, remember when Jesus got down to wash the disciples' feet and Peter rebuked him and did not want anything to do with that. Foot washing was a dirty job. It was a servant's job. Open-toed shoes, you know, they didn't have shoes like you and I wear. And the roads were not paved. And most of the communities, they were dirt roads. So your feet would be constantly filthy and possibly worse if you had any cuts or bruises or things that those could get infected. And so John is not even worthy to stoop down and untie, to touch the dirty feet and the dirty shoes of the Christ. He's not even worthy to be a servant of Jesus. That's humility, and it's good, and it's actually true, too, right? You and I are not worthy to do this either. And yet we are slaves of Christ because he has called us his own. We saw some of that in the Old Testament text, right? I have called you by name, you are mine. We are his possession. And we are servants of the king forevermore. He will baptize you with Holy Spirit and fire. Typically seen there is a reference to Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit descends upon the people in the form of fire, like tongues of fire resting upon the disciples 
heads as they then began to preach the gospel. The fire referent could also perhaps be a reference to the judgment. We saw some of that again with the Old Testament reading. Fire and judgment, we see fire in the next verse here as a reference to judgment. That those who do not believe will be tossed into the unquenchable fire. So this fire then, perhaps in verse 16, if you're taking it as a judgment reference, you would take it to, as we mentioned before, the 1 Corinthians 3 passage, um, where we will be basically tested, refined by fire. But we, we could talk about the distinction of baptisms, that John's baptism is not the same as Jesus' baptism. I think John himself makes that point here, um, so I won't belabor it much um, other than to point out this comes up in the book of Acts, that Paul has this conversation with a group of people asking whose baptism they had received, and they didn't even know of the baptism of Jesus. And so they were then baptized, even though they had already received the baptism of John. So John's baptism, not the same. All right, then we get the verse 17 about judgment. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor. And the picture here is you would, as a farmer at the harvest, you would gather in your crop, you would bring the wheat, and you would bring it to a threshing floor, which was basically like a, an open-air location, so you didn't have closed walls all around it. You're not just inside of a barn. Um, whether you had a roof or not, potentially, so that the crop doesn't get wet. But you would take the, the, the crop, you'd put it on the hardened floor, and you would take a basically like a pitchfork, and you would throw the, the grain up into the air. You'd throw the wheat up into the air, and the chaff, being lightweight, is going to break away, and the wind is going to blow it away while the heavier stuff, the good seed that you want to keep, is going to fall back to the floor. So the picture here is Jesus is doing that in the day of judgment you and me and everyone else, and that those who do not believe in Christ will be blown away into an unquenchable fire. We would pretty easily connect that to the picture of hell here. Whereas those who are faithful, he will gather to himself in his barn, his paradise. All right, the next paragraph then. So with many other exhortations, he preached good news to the people. But Herod the Tetrarch, who had been reproved by him for Herodias, his brother's wife, and for all the evil things that Herod had done, added this to them all, and he locked up John in prison. So John, in many ways, preaching, teaching the crowds, he's exhorting them to faith. He's telling them the good news about the Messiah who has come. He even gets to point them, literally, to Jesus as the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. That's the people. Then we have a leader distinguished from the people, and that's King Herod. Um, Herod is never actually, this Herod is never actually referred to historically as a king, but he does get that title given to him in the scriptures. He reigns from 4 BC until 39 AD. This is Herod Antipas. Um, His father is Herod the Great. For the family relationships here, it's worth knowing that Herod the Great the father who died in 4 BC, he's the one that tried to kill baby Jesus, had 10 wives, and by those 10 wives had at least nine sons. Several of the older of them he executed um, for various crimes against him. And so that's why you're going to see some messed up family relations coming here. Um, Herod is tetrarch. So when dad died, his domain, his dominion in the Roman Empire, which was just a small part of it, really. Um, He's a servant king, a client king to the Roman emperor. It's divided amongst his sons, three of them. His son Archelaus is going to be the one who gets the biggest role and responsibility. He's the ethnarch, so he oversees the tetrarchy um, in that sense. He's the highest on that totem pole here. He is the one that the Holy Family is afraid of. When when Joseph brings Mary and Jesus back from Egypt in Matthew chapter 2, they don't go back to Jerusalem because Archelaus is there. And 
Let's just say his reputation preceded him. Then his brothers, many of the sons here, his brothers, it would be Herod Antipas and then also Philip, who get the other two positions as tetrarchs over smaller areas to rule. So Herod Antipas is over Galilee and Perea from 4 BC until 39 AD. What's important to mention here in this context, though, is that Philip had married a woman named Herodias, who actually happened to be his niece. Um, She is the daughter of Aristobulus, one of the sons of Herod the Great. And she divorces him to go and marry his brother Herod Antipas. And, And Antipas is in on this. It's a plot, right? It's not like just one person conceive this plan. So Herod Antipas actually divorces his wife and Herodias gets divorced and then the two of them come together. And John the Baptist preaches against this. He proclaims that this is wrong, is unfaithful. And it would appear from the grammar of this verse that that's not the only rebuke that Herod got to hear from John the Baptist. But instead, John is arrested by King Herod, and as we see in chapter 9, verse 9, executed by him as well. That text is never actually read in our churches, by the way, uh, the beginning of Luke chapter 9. We do get later sections of chapter 9, just not that part of it. All right, our final paragraph today, verses 21 and 22. Now when all the people were baptized, and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens were opened and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form, like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son with you. I am well pleased. So John doing his work, baptizing many, and then the baptism of Jesus just simply is recorded here by Luke as having happened. We don't get the details as we do from from elsewhere in the gospels. But we learn that once it had happened, Jesus prayed, the heavens opened, and the spirit descended on Jesus and bodily form like a dove. So there is Luke, like a dove, trying to give us a description of what the event looked like, which, you know, you're seeing God descend from heaven upon God. It would be quite a sight, and it would be very difficult to describe. Uh, So this is what we have, and it is why the dove becomes the symbol for the Holy Spirit in the history of the church, various artwork um, that you might see, and in you know, even as you think of your own congregation, the stained glass that you might have or the, the patterns that are on your, your pyramids, so the, the colorful pieces of fabric that help us to know which season of the church year that it is. Um, baptism of Our Lord Sunday is, is white, uh, so on those white pyramids, perhaps. I know we have, we have some here at our congregation, or you see the dove as a shape on your Christmas tree with the Chrismans at Christmas time. So lots of things like that. If you're looking at symbols in that way, typically the, the Father is a hand reaching down from heaven. The Holy Spirit is the dove, and Jesus is a lamb carrying a flag that has the cross on it. That tends to be the, that threefold symbology that you would see. And God speaks as the Holy Spirit descends and says the same words that you will hear the Lord speak over Jesus at the time of the transfiguration. You are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. So Jesus has for these last roughly 30 years, as we see in Luke chapter 4, he's kept the law of God perfectly. He has done what the Father has sent him to do, at least up until this point. He has more work yet to be done, um, historically speaking, from the perspective of where we are in Luke's gospel. He still has to make it to the cross. He still has to suffer and die. Um, We can look back on that. We know he has for us. And that's the connection to the Old Testament text here. I mean, everyone called by my name, so he calls Jesus by name here, right? You are my beloved son. But for us, this is our Redeemer. He is the one. This is the one who will redeem us by his almost precious blood, so that we need not fear that we will pass through the waters and through the fire and that he is with us, that we are his. 
It's in this one. It's in this Messiah, this Christ, this Jesus, that we are saved. Amen.